0: Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. We believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, to really dig in and understand the context and the culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with His Word. This season, we are going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and today's episode, is chapter six. You are set apart. Well, again, um, I'm trying to get into the habit of letting you guys know that you can support us. We are a a listener supported ministry and this ministry does more than just podcasts and YouTube. Um, There's actually a team of people. We have writers that um, write blogs on the chapter and about Christian life. Um, we have one of our members that is about to release a um, our first Bible study that she's written, and we'll tell you more about that um, here in the next week. It'll be announced next Thursday, and um, we're going to have a release party that we would love for you to be a part of. And there, you will learn trip tricks and tools on how to dig into God's Word more effectively. And um, we do a women's retreats that are not. I mean we want people to have fun but the goal of them is to really encounter the presence of God so that they can be healed of of trauma that has been in their life and then in turn go go out and spread the gospel and be effective for the kingdom of God. Um we are having our second one here in the next couple of weeks and we um we're doing a Bible um we are joining um with um, legacy milestones to go on a trip, a study trip to Israel. And uh, um, there are just other things that we want to get into your hands so that you can better understand the text. And then in turn, use that to disciple other people. That is really a heart of this ministry was birthed out of Um, One, a desire or or a need that I saw that people are in church and they're serving in church. They're serving in in, in kids ministry, youth ministry, small group ministry, but they don't know how to engage the text. And the the whole purpose of all of those ministries is to bring people alongside of you to disciple them. So how can we disciple others if we don't know ourselves how to get into the text? This isn't a... um, a complaint on them, it was just a realization that we in the the church world, um, and I'm using air quotes, um, really ha- um, do a good job of saying you need to read your Bible, but we do a really poor job because we are Western and we are all about classrooms and sitting in rows and taking lecture notes. But an Eastern mindset is, come, let me show you. And so really, that is where this birthed. Um, while I have a podcast and I talk about it, I'm very active in um, having women come into uh, um, my home. I'm part of a young adult group where somebody, uh, one of my teammates opens her home. We have several, several small groups within our team, but then the hope is that you gather people around your table and, and disciple them as well. We also so so I have to say that this ministry could not happen without you. It is crowdfunded, so if you love what we do and want to support us financially, you can hop on over to a dot nerd.com You can click on the giving tab and you can set up for a one time or monthly or however however often. There's all different kinds of options. Um, Gift it is tax deductible, and we thank you for your love and support. And for those of you that just tune in and you share and you like and you leave comments, all of those. Things things help um, support our ministry. So keep that up. Thank you for doing that. I also want to um, mention before we get in is this is this episode is again for a mature audience. We will be talking about um, sexual sins in the second half of this chapter. So if you have little ones you may want to pause this to your alone or again grab those earbuds. So let's get started. This book has been just utterly fascinating to me. It has been unlike any other book that we have studied in its uniqueness to address so many things that we deal with in our culture. It's almost as if Paul was writing in our times. There's so much um, that our culture is saying is okay. And this letter, this beautiful letter that we had, that have been, has been preserved from Paul to the Corinth church in the first century can apply to us in so many different ways today. So this segment, he talks about lawsuits um, among believers. Now, this one is a little bit different for us because it's not every day that believers are taking each other to court. It was a much different um reality back then but I thought Judy Klein one of our team members did a a beautiful job of um, kind of sharing her modern day situation and how they went to scripture and how they went to prayer to handle it but in this day in Corinth Paul writes and says if you have legal dispute with one another do you go to the court before unrighteous um, and unrighteous before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Here, Paul is going to ask a series of rhetorical questions to show. Their lack of wisdom. Remember from the very beginning, these Corinthians pride themselves on their wisdom and their knowledge of just whatever is out in the world. Um, They are even arguing over who they follow, who's the most wise of all the teachers of um, the biblical text. And he is showing them that they need to humble themselves. They're not as wise as they think. So he's asking these questions to show their lack of wisdom. He ends up saying, or don't you know, and he's going to say this six times, Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases? Now, this is tied up in the theology that when Christ returns, we will reign with him. I wish I had more information about this, but I just just don't have a full understanding of it because it is still a mystery. But we can walk in faith in what the word does say and know that we will reign with him. It's implying that we will judge unbelievers and angels, which is crazy. Um, many, most scholars will agree that that is the fallen angels, that we will judge them. He goes on to say, don't you know we will judge angels, not to mention ordinary matters." So he's saying we are going to be judges. We have authority. So why would we as believers take matters to the court for unbelievers to settle when we're going to be the ones that have this wisdom and ability to judge when Christ returns. We will even judge the angels. Now, another word for judge, it's K-R-I-N-O is the Greek word. So that, that's not another word. That is the Greek word for judge, but another meaning, um, for judge is to rule and reign over. So we will rule and reign over, um, other angels. Um, Again, don't quite understand what that means, but it is suspected by most scholars that we will be a part of the judgment process for the fallen angels. So, Let's talk a little bit about what life was like in the court system in this day. Um, Greeks were notorious for their love of going to the law to settle disputes. In fact, just a few miles over at the neighboring city of Athens, there was a common saying that um, every Athenian was a lawyer. They loved this. And the judge in this culture would go down to the city square and sit on the judgment seat, which that is a familiar term, judgment seat of Christ, that God in the Old Testament, New Testament, he is using so many familiar terms with the culture that the text was written in. And so to them, it's like everyday language, but to us, it sounds so spiritual and that's just church language. But that a, a human being would sit down in the market square and sit on the bema seat or the judgment seat, and they would hold court sessions out in the public square. And this was entertainment for these people. So they loved going and watching the proceedings. And in fact, this was so interesting that Um, people wanted to be on the jury. This was something desired, but you had to be 60 years old or older. Remember, they valued wisdom. And so I love that they didn't just half-heartedly pick jury members, but they thought you had to live a little. You had to gain as much knowledge and wisdom and maturity as you could before you were capable of making these decisions. But while a typical jury, get this, was 40 people, that's a big jury to make one decision, sometimes over 100 members would be on a jury and there was one um, case found in archaeology that had a thousand member jury so this is a form of entertainment they do take it seriously but like everyone's gonna go and watch the trials on a daily basis and so Paul is saying these matters that you were squabbling about in the church first of all you you're going to to judge with Christ one day. So why not you have the wisdom, you have the Holy Spirit guiding you. Why not solve these things in private with um with a mediator within the, the church? Because one, you're letting an unbeliever and a jury of unbelievers make this decision for you, but it's also hurting the the um The mission that we have it looks like we're divided, and that shouldn't be. we should be united and we need to solve these matters privately, behind closed doors, and in love. Um, he ends up saying uh, let me see um that it is a moral failure to have these legal disputes in public because it, it's hurting the body so bad. He he uses the term, he says shame like BDU, shame on you, which is um, the Corinthians avoided shame at all costs. So he comes down pretty hard on them and he wants them to feel uncomfortable. And then he ends up comparing this. He's saying, Your actions of doing this is no different than the unrighteous who will not enter the kingdom of God. He says, Don't you know the unrighteous will not enter the kingdom of God? It's as if he's saying, Stop acting like unbelievers. Like that 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 is where they're headed. They're they're headed in an opposite way of entering in the kingdom of God and so stop acting like them and let's take things seriously and let's do things in the order that God has and he ends up listing a list of vices that I want us to address today because many of these are things that are important to the heart of God it's his order God is the creator of the universe and he created an order of doing things um, while this isn't uh, the best example, sometimes, you know, we need to look at things in the natural world to, to help our minds wrap around this. And while, um, I guess, I guess we created our children. You create your children and you have boundaries for them. For example, um, when my girls were small, we lived on a highway like our our house was offset from the highway. So some of my boundaries where you could not play in the front yard for two reasons. One, you're playing, you hit a ball into the road. Well, this isn't, you know, a, a neighborhood road where there might be a car. There are cars flying going 85 miles an hour past our house. And so you Run into the road to get your ball it is high, is very likely that you are going to be killed. Secondly, we lived right off of I-10, which is a major highway going um, east to west across our nation and uh, sex trafficking is a a big, serious deal. And I, um, you know, always would think somebody could grab my kids and I would never see them again. I mean, they would be out of here. They'd be out of Texas within minutes. And so I wanted to protect them from that. Also had boundaries in our backyard. I mentioned before that we had a swimming pool. And so there were certain things. Did I not want my kids to go outside and enjoy? Absolutely not. We went outside all the time and we enjoyed outside, but there were boundaries to stay in for their protection and safety. Safety. So the same thing goes with God. He has an order of how we are things. He created us so he knows all the ins and outs. He knows every danger lurking and he knows every joy that there is to experience in this life. And he wants us to have fullness of joy and he wants us to experience the world as he created it. So, he puts boundaries up to keep us safe and to keep us, and, and to keep other people safe from the decisions that we make. If we make that poor decisions, it will affect other people. And so, he has this list of vices that Paul mentions, and it is solely to, um, to, show the Corinthians that this is that serious, like taking matters to a public court, to a, to a non-believing judge and to a non-believing jury is just as serious as these vices, and it is acting like the world. And so he mentions this list. Um, he said that these people are not inheriting the kingdom of God. And this is not saying that if a Christian stumbles into one of these things that their chances of heaven. That's not what he is saying. This is people who choose a lifestyle of these things and that have not turned, given their life to Jesus. And part of having faith in Jesus, part of our faith, when we say we believe in Jesus, part of belief, whenever you break down that word in its its Hebrew meaning, is obedience. So it's for people who say, I'm not going to do things in God's order. I'm going to do things in my order. And they never yield to that submission. These people are sexually immoral? Another word for that is fornicators, and it is um, any type of sex outside of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. And we'll get to that marriage covenant and why that's so important in just a little bit. Idolaters, idolaters were well in this world. Um, you would go to the temple of Aphrodite or many of the other temples, but that was the largest temple where there was a thousand prostitutes, and if you wanted favor for whatever she was the goddess of, you would participate in sexual intercourse out in the open with the temple prostitutes. And that was a form of worshiping that God. And this was a real problem to the people in the ancient world, because even while they may want to follow Jesus and only Jesus to participate in daily life, to trade in the market, to be a part of, um, different social clubs that would help you gain status and and favor among the people to raise your status in this world, you would have to go and participate in the, these temple worships. And he's saying, flee from it. You cannot do that anymore. But also idolaters is of elevating anything um, higher, anyone, anything higher than your allegiance to God. And that is, whew, we struggle with that today. There are so many things that we put first in our lives and we are constantly needing to get into the word, um, and to, to draw near to the father so he can reveal those things so that we can repent from them, turn away from them and put him first and right standing. He also mentions adultery. This is, um, Sex outside of marriage, which I feel like in our culture, that's kind of a, yeah, we know that that's a no-no. Even lost people will um, agree to that. But what is crazy is in this culture, that is almost something unheard of. This would have been big news to these um, these new Christians. Um, it was... Um, Common in this culture, there was a term for the head of the household, and I'm talking the oldest member of a family. So the the oldest father in a family, even though he could have grown sons, was called the paterfamilia, and they had free reign to do whatever they wanted with anyone they wanted except for a married woman. That included the temple prostitutes, that included their slave girls, that included single women. They could do whatever they wanted. So adultery was rampant. It was just common practice. It was something that was allowed and celebrated. And Paul is saying no more. You you cannot do that and be a follower of Christ. It is forbidden in the church. Then in my Bible, it says anyone practicing homosexuality, but I looked in the King James Version and some other versions, and it actually splits it up into two words. Um, the, it, there was a Greek word used for this homosexuality in my Bible called M A L A K O I, which includes male prostitutes, again, going to the temple and participating in these um, sex acts for the worship of a god. And sodomy, which would be in a relationship um, in everyday life. Um, In fact, in the um, King James, New King James, a couple other versions, it, it breaks it up and says the effeminate and the abusers of themselves with mankind. Let me explain what they're talking about here in this culture with the paterfamilia, the head of the household, the father that was able to do whatever he wanted with anyone he wanted. It was extremely common for these older men to take on a young young teenage boy to be their lover. And so the teenage boy, the younger one would be the effeminate. They would play the role of a more feminine, um, submissive partner and the paterfamilia would take on the dominant role and this is all kinds of I mean first of all this is um pedophilia this was common in this era so um Paul is speaking out against all homosexuality and again this would have been something that shook this culture because this was something so common. In fact, 14 out of 15, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, 14 out of 15 of the Roman emperors were bisexual or homosexual. And Nero, who at the time is the current um, emperor, had a young boy named Sporus castrated and then married him in a full um ceremony. And so Paul is teaching that this type of sexuality is forbidden under God's law because he has an order. And I wanted to address that today because in our culture, there is a push for all of these things to become normal. And God is so full of love that he wants us to be safe and he wants us to be protected. But we will get to another even bigger reason because sexuality is such a a natural picture of what something spiritual happening that God wants us to know, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, He goes on to say that other things that lost people do that are um that will not enter the kingdom of god or people that are thieves that are greedy are covetous um covetous so you you desiring what what other people have or you hoarding things for yourself um drunkards so people who are abusing alcohol um my bible says verbally abusive but i looked up and most uh, most um translations say revilers. I looked that up and that was an interesting word because it encompassed so many things. So remember, these things are dangerous. These are just as dangerous as adultery. So like we, 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 we need to examine ourselves against all of this list and flee from it. But a reviler is somebody who slanders other people. Um, someone who has angry outbursts, um, that you don't have your anger under control. There's no self control. Someone who uses foul language, who curses God, um, that even includes crude joking and filthiness. You can look up Ephesians 5 4 and study that if you have any questions or doubts on that. Um, and really all of the things that come out of our mouth is revealing what is in our heart. It's exposing what is in our heart, which is a deeper, more serious matter. Um, there is our speech is such a precious gift. Um, in, in fact, the word of God says that there is life and death just with the spoken word. We can speak life. We can speak death, creation was burst into reality through God's spoken word. There is something very supernatural about our words. In fact, when we share our testimony or we share the truth of the gospel, the Holy Spirit bursts forth and can change hearts. It's not our our ability to convince someone or to be a great auditory, but Order, but it is actually power that goes forth that changes hearts and lives, and so we need to be good stewards of our words. Um, Another um, thing on the list was swindlers or extortioners, somebody who's going to use deception to earn money. So he goes on and reminds these people, like, "Hey, you're you're acting in this matter of bringing people to court and letting the unbelievers decide. You are acting like." this list of unbelievers, and some of you used to be like this. This was your identity, but now you are washed. You are sanctified and justified. This is part of the gospel, guys. We need to understand these two words, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time here. But this is gospel, and this is so important for us to understand and to reiterate to people. Now, when we use the words sanctified and justified, those seem like holy, Christian terms that are kind of abstract and hard to um, define. Again, in this culture, this was everyday language that they were very familiar with. So the very first thing that happens is when we decide, when we have our, we believe on Jesus, we put our faith on him, we turn to him, we are justified. This is a court and legal term. Remember, Court is huge and important, um, and it's a part of everyday life to these to these people. So it was commonly understood. It is when the jury, the judge, declares someone not guilty. So, Jesus, I I believe in you. I give my life to you. Immediately, I would be declared not guilty. I have all of this sin in my life, and I will sin again. But I, in front of God, he sees me not guilty. This is huge. It's God's declaration about us, but not the change within us. This is justification. We're going to get to the change in us in just a minute, so hang tight. Don't think that I'm speaking blasphemy. It's God's declaration about us. It's not yet talking about the change within us. It's given Through faith in Jesus to all who believe, and it's free for us. It doesn't cost us anything. It happens at the moment of salvation. What it does not do, it does not excuse our sin. It doesn't ignore or even endorse our sin. It punishes our sin fully. Our sin gets punished fully. It gets nailed to the cross through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He paid our penalty. So we're before a jury and we are declared not guilty, and someone else pays our fine for us. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, they would slaughter an animal and that blood would cover the sins of the nation for one year. So this is a practice that they had done for, for generations and generations, thousands and thousands of years. But when Jesus died as the Passover lamb or a, a, as the spotless lamb, it removed our sin once and forevermore. So to the Jewish people, this was absolutely good news. I mean, it's called the good news, but we don't quite get a full understanding of it because they were having to go through all these rituals that would cover their sin, not take it away, just cover it up for one year. But through the blood of Christ, our sin is removed and forgiven forever. This is such great news. And it also, in the Old Testament, there were certain sins that it would not cover. Sins that you purposely did. But through the the blood of Jesus, all sins were forgiven. It was such a beautiful thing. A large... Um, Portion of people will stop here in their Christian journey remember Paul tells them you have been washed you've been sanctified and justified the church does a really 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 good job of teaching preaching expressing a need for salvation and leading people to that place but it does a poor job of just letting people stay there the next phase is sanctification This is where the inward change takes place. So God accepts us, declares us not guilty, even while we are still sinners. After that, yes, we get to spend eternity in God in heaven. What a beautiful thing. But it's even more beautiful if you don't stop there. What happens in sanctification, it's a process of an inward change. It's a journey that you'll be on for the rest of your life where you are set apart, holy, or consecrated. These are churchy words for us They were common words for the people back then. Um, Examples of things being consecrated or holy or set apart was Mount Sinai and Exodus. Um, Moses was to put a perimeter, a limits around Mount Sinai and consecrate it. Only he was allowed to go up top. That mountain was set apart for Moses and for God. Um, The temple, inside the the tabernacle and temple, they use vessels— in their worship. They had a um, lampstand. They had a table. They had goblets. They had all different kinds of tools that would be also found in, in common homes. But in the temple, those lampstands and, and and silverware and plates and, and cups were set apart for God. They were holy. Even though it was something that could be found common in homes, that particular set was set apart only to be used for the worship of God. Let me tell you how serious this is. King Nebuchadnezzar comes through um, in the Babylonian... Um, takeover of Israel and he goes through the temple and rummages it takes all the things that he wants the temple treasury and he brings it back to Babylon and he puts it in the storehouse well then later King Belshazzar who is in power um, in a party one night orders um, his servants to go and grab the goblets that um, are in the temple treasury that were from God's holy temple. And he's partying and he's drinking out of them. And all of a sudden a hand appears and writes on the wall and he's writing in this cryptic message. And they go and get Daniel to interpret and basically... Uh, the message is Belshazzar you have been weighed and found guilty and it was a prophetic message that he would not make it alive and he does that's how serious it is to use God's holy set apart things in an improper way so another thing that's holy is uh, or set apart is um, the Sabbath that is sundown from Friday to sundown Saturday That day, that 24 hour period is set apart. God's saying it's not like any of the other days. It's a special, unique day and it needs to be treated differently. God's name is set apart. We are to keep it holy. But the biggest thing I want to talk about is that God's people, you and I, are holy. We are to consecrate ourselves and be holy because He is holy. That is a command from God in Leviticus 20, Ephesians 5. We are to be holy. Our lives are to be set apart. They are not to be used as ordinary things and we are not to participate in um, things that are detestable to God because we have been set apart and made holy. And the point of that is so that people can look at us and see Jesus. Right now, if you interview a bunch of lost people, they are a-okay with Jesus. They think he was a good man who did good things. And you ask him about Christianity and then they, they have a slew of horrible things to say. So we're doing a poor job of being image bearers of him, because when people describe us, they should use the same adjectives as they do for Jesus. So the more that we operate in the sanctification where it's not a legality, like, oh, let me obey all the rules and be like a robot. It's spending time with him, building our relationship with him, letting him transform us. And all of a sudden we don't want to do those things. Or even if we want to, we say, Lord, take away this want inside of me, because I want to be holy because you were holy. I want to be a, a beautiful reflection of you so that other people can come to know you. Um, That's the heart of God for us to want to do it, not just out of rote um, memorization of scripture. And then this is what I have to do. I have to check the boxes. So being set apart is for a special use. It's not to be ordinary, different from the rest. We are justified and we are sanctified. So we are called to stand out and not participate in the way that the world does things. He goes on to say a common quote in the um, the world and around Corinth. And he says, everything is permissible for me. This is common. The Corinth said that uh, even in the secular world and it was brought into the church. Everything's permissible for me. And he's saying out of those freedoms that you have, not everything is helpful. Out of the freedoms that you have, I will not be under the control of anything. This is the key word to this verse. I will not be under the control of anything. There are things that we are free to do and to participate in, but once it gains control of our life, it becomes top. That's where that idolatry comes in, and we are to... be of sound mind and not allow things to control us outside of our heavenly father he doesn't even control us; he gives us free will and we submit to that so we are not to be under the power of control of any substance this is where the danger lies he saw early on that the gentile believers in jesus were not to fall under the mosaic law so they are, they had freedoms that the jewish brothers and sisters did not have and he wasn't saying, and he preached and he fought for their freedom. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You don't have to convert to Judaism and then become a follower of Christ. You have some freedoms, but oftentimes that led people to believe that in that freedom, they could do whatever they wanted. And he is saying, and he's warning them that sometimes your liberties can take control and take captive of you. And just a list that I, I thought of is sex, while that is something biblical and good, if if we do this in outside of a God's order, it can completely grab a hold of us and become a stronghold and, and, and become something that destroys us in our life. Same thing with alcohol. It, the Bible just speaks against drunkenness. It was very common. They, they, they drank four cups of wine at the Lord's Passover. Wine was not prohibited. It was drunkardness. See, so, so there's freedom you're allowed to drink, but it, if it grabs control of you, then that's where the danger is, and Paul is saying we need to back away. Um, Spending money, money can take control of us, and it's not evil in and of itself. Our hobbies can take control of us. Working out, becoming healthy, the way that we eat our meals can take control of us. So we have particular freedoms, but we have to watch and see if it's controlling us, and that's where the danger is. We also need to ask, can my freedoms cause someone else to stop? stumble and is that loving our neighbor if we continue in it so he goes on to talk about another saying he says food for the stomach and the stomach for food but God will do away with them both the body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body this was a the food for the stomach stomach for the food this was kind of a a a saying that was floating around in Corinth they loved their food in fact they have found recipes in archaeology as they were digging things up one of the recipes was anchovy delight without the anchovies they loved their food and they took pride in their food and they saw food and their bodies as temporal and since you perform sex with your body, they saw that as temporal. So they kind of was like, oh, when you have a hunger for food, you feed your body. So when you have a hunger to fulfill your sexual needs and desires, go ahead and do that. All of this is going to pass away anyway. But Paul is coming in and saying the two are not connected. They are very, very different. It's not the same. In fact, Sex is a gift that is given by God, and it is very spiritual. He tells us at the very beginning of time in Genesis that when we come together, and he he talks about it he, like Adam and Eve were given in marriage. It calls Adam Eve his wife. Um, the two will become one flesh. I love this because it, it in my mind my understanding of scriptures we are image bearers made in the image of God and God gave some of his likeness and characteristics into man and some of his beautiful likeness and characteristics into woman. And when we come when we come together in a marriage union, it's like you're becoming one and encompassing all of God's beauty and characteristics. And it's not just that your bodies are coming one. Your soul is intertwined that your mind um body, and spirit. It is uniting and your soul is eternal. So this is not something that is just temporary or that will pass away. You are becoming one flesh and your soul is intertwining and becoming one. And that one is eternal. I love how Genesis just, um, pictures it, that you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is a picture. This, this, this union between a husband and wife is a picture reflecting the mystery of christ and the church he is the groom we are the bride and he is he will keep his unbreakable covenant with his bride no matter what she has gone and she has prostituted herself to other nations and he is going to remain faithful and he is going to return to his bride so um the Bible is written with all kinds of natural pictures of spiritual truths. And so the marriage bed is one beautiful picture between a groom, which is Christ, and the bride, which is the church. And so this is a very serious matter, and it can bring so much destruction. One of the things that I have been asking the Holy Spirit for for some time, and I haven't got my answer yet, but... um. Any type of pagan ritual, so like the Temple of Aphrodite, it's it, it's riddled with prostitution and sex. Um, if you read about the occult in America now and Satanism and Luciferianism, they all use sex. Sex is such an intricate part of all kinds of worship, and so you have to just look at it, just from, as an outsider, just look at it and say there is something very spiritual about it, and uh, if Satan uses it in all of his, um, twisted forms of worship, then evidently it can become very dangerous if not done in God's order. So to close up, he ends up saying that we are God's temple. Um, in the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle, it was a tent that was set up with different diviners, and there was one section of that called the Holy of Holies, and then later when um, when the temple was actually built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, there was a, session, a segment where the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant resided, and God's presence was on earth in this room, the Holy of Holies. Well, when Jesus or when God sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that same spirit that dwelt in that room went inside of every single believer. So now our bodies are God's temple. It's his dwelling place here on earth. And he's saying, don't you know that you are God's temple? Like that temple to Aphrodite, you have to go there and participate in things, but you, you are God's temple. That's where his spirit reigns. Um, Interesting fact, you know you see these idols that are um in in these different temples um and i always thought as a child that's so weird that man would create something and then worship it and um, i've just learned to realize that what the ancient people believed is this is just an empty vessel and when i worship the spirit of that god will come and encompass it well in our faith our god comes inside of us so we are god's temple and so he's saying, what part do you have with a prostitute? When you are laying with someone that is not married to you, it's out of covenant, um, and out of covenant, this is destroying the picture of God has and you are joining something like the, the prostitute in the temples were a whole complete other God. And so you are joining together what is the temple of the holy God with a false idol. And so he is warning against this and giving them a picture that it's so much deeper, again, than them just eating food. Food for the stomach, sex for the soul. Um, he ends up saying to run from it. All, I thought this was so interesting. All other sin is he doesn't give this warning to it's to sexual immorality he's not saying that sexual immorality is a bigger sin he's just saying it is different because it involves his temple and he's saying run from it the the most beautiful picture in scripture is um Joseph, whenever he gets sold into slavery and then lives in Potiphar's house as a servant and Potiphar's wife um, tries to seduce him, he ran from her. It's something that we are to run from. We are not to dabble in. We're not to stick our toes in because it is extremely, it can be extremely dangerous and grab a stronghold of our life if used improperly. And so he's saying run from it. Other sin, we just resist. Uh, so then he ends up closing by saying your body is now the temple of the house of God's presence. It doesn't belong to you, but it was bought. God bought us through the blood of his son. The thing that I wanted to end with, and I think that I have learned this beautiful, beautiful thing from my father, is um, my father was raised in a Christian home. But then he went and dove headfirst into the world. And I don't really have a full understanding of everything he participated in, but it's to my understanding that he was all in. He was all in, did things all his way. And then he came to the saving grace and knowledge of Jesus and completely and radically changed his life. And so when he taught, excuse me for a second. When he taught, it wasn't through the eyes of like a Pharisee that um, obeyed the law and did everything perfect and kind of looked down on their nose at people who didn't do that, but it truly was like, wow, I'm a sinner and I'm saved and I'm completely forgiven. So when he taught, especially when he talked about hard things like this, he always, always ended with talking about God's grace and his beauty. Like if you participated in this, it's not just saying, Hey, live in shame. Th- these are things that are vices against God and you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. No, he always tied it back. And I think because he walked that path, because he experienced most of these things, he was so in awe of God's saving grace, his forgiveness and his redemption and So there is a scripture that I totally closed my notes and I wanted to um, quote. So give me a second here to go back to it because it's so. This is one of the most important parts of this. Is um, one John one nine through ten. The verse reads: If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. But it doesn't end there. So He forgives us, but then He cleanses us. From all unrighteousness. One of the things talking about sanctification that I, I, I skipped over, I guess, as I was um, teaching this, is that the Bible teaches that we are washed through the renewing of our minds through the Word of God. So today, if if there are any of those sins in your life, if, if they're in your past, and Confess them and repent that like we confess our sins to, to God for forgiveness. We confess our sins one to another to be healed. But when you when you do that, when you confess your sins to God and, and repent, repent means not necessarily to just say, hey, I, I admit that I'm participating in these sins. It's to turn away from those. So when we repent from our sins. God has a way of completely washing us white as snow. So when he sees us, he doesn't see all of that because that sin has been removed. It wasn't covered by God's blood, it was removed by God's blood and it was nailed to the cross. So it is not there. And if we are involved in these sins, if you are in, you know participating in one of these sins right now, it's not that God is upstairs shaking his finger, having a little mallet, bopping us on the head, saying, I knew you would fail. It's saying, yes, this world is falling. You're going to fall. You need me. Turn to me. Come to me. Repent. I want you to be healed. I want you to walk in freedom. It's a loving father with his arms open wide, just like the prodigal's father. Remember he was on the rooftop looking day and night, is my son going to return? And when he saw him he went running to him and then he he threw a huge party. That is the heart of our loving father. And so when we're participating in these sins, he's just wanting us to turn away because he knows that they will ultimately destroy us. So today Let's go to God in prayer. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for forgiving us. We we thank you for your standard. We thank you that not only did you create the world, but that you gave us this, this instruction book to say, hey, if you do things in my order, you get to live life to the fullest. And we thank you for that. And we also thank you for making a plan that when we blow it, and we will, when we blow it, we have somewhere to turn. And we thank you that you are so quick to forgive and forget, Lord God. So so we thank you for your word today, and I just pray if anyone out there is is feeling condemnation and shame from something they've already repented from, Lord God, that, 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 that you just move in a mighty way, that they will recognize that that condemnation comes from Satan himself and not from you. Lord God, you bring conviction so that our hearts will turn to you, but once we've done that, Lord God, it's forgetting forgiven, and forgotten. And so, I just pray that you move in a in a very special and sweet way. I pray that you give revelation to people that are digging into your word, Lord God. Give them eyes to see, and, and and give us all willing hearts to walk in that obedience, not just out of oh, this is what we have to do to be good children of God, but because we are in loving relationship with you, and that's what we're wanting to do is lay down our lives to serve you. I thank you for your word, and. In Jesus name. Amen. Guys, I'll see you next week. We will talk about chapter 7. It's it um just hold on tight. <laughs> I'll see you next week. Happy reading.